small break from Titus for today and diving into the story of Ruth. It was a a wonderful opportunity, one, uh, as she shows what a mom can do, what a woman can do, how faith is represented, but also our next series after Titus uh, falls in the book of Judges. And Ruth lived during the time of the Judges, and actually she typifies or exemplifies what is needed as you would walk through the time of the Judges. And as I think when we get to the Judges, you'll notice uh, that that time looked a lot like ours. And the title of that series is When Everyone's Right. Uh, and that was the, the, the takeaway. And so I want to take this chance uh, for Mother's Day to, to look at the book of Ruth. Uh, that way we're, we're seeing a story, an illustration of what it was like in Judges, give you a little hint uh, to what's coming in the next series, and help us learn, I put a healthy faith in a struggling culture, and, and that's the reality of the book of Judges, and we'll be applying that uh, to our world today when we're in that series. And so Ruth is going to paint us that picture there. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Really, it's only 85 verses, so it's short, uh, but it shows us a lot uh, of what it takes uh, to live during a time when faith is not valued. Uh, when oftentimes it's demeaned or lowered or when people do uh, whatever they want. Now, years ago, uh, some of my brothers uh, went to New York City for New Year's Eve and then later on recounted to me some of what took place just getting to the ball drop in Times Square uh, by some mishap of navigation. And they were driving there during the time where they shouldn't have done this, but they did. Uh, They ended up driving out of Manhattan uh, and into a more intense borough of the city, Uh, one much less conducive to tourism, Uh, a neighborhood where you do not stop and ask for directions. Uh, You keep moving and hope you guess right and quickly on getting out of there. A hard, difficult place to be. Uh, So obviously difficult and scary that the one driving was going into a panic just being there. Uh, He didn't tell me that. The other brothers did. Uh, They were either too slow or too brave to pick up on the danger and thought he was ridiculous. But either way, you can only imagine how tough it was to live in that portion of the city. Uh, We always paint a gleaming pretty picture, uh, but we also know there are places where it's extremely difficult. And and yes, this is probably the first time my mom's hearing about it, Um, but they got home safely. All is well. There's no issues. They're all right. She has plenty of sons anyway. She has some to spare. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wasn't me. So um, I share that story because there's places and times where it's hard and difficult and dangerous to live, especially if you're living uh, for the Lord. Times and places where the moral compass is so far off, it boggles the mind. Times and places where the religious thermostat is not just cold, it seems to have been ripped off the wall. And I want us to realize something. Ruth lived during one of those times, and yet displayed an amazingly healthy faith in a very struggling culture. The story of Ruth begins with this phrase, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And the time of the judges was not a time of great spiritual and moral victories. Now she's on a fall towards the end of the time of Judges. Obviously, she's in the lineage of King David, his great-grandmother. And so you know we're, we're getting out of the Judges there, uh, possibly even during the time of Samson. But here we see her coming into this story. And when you read through Judges, what you find is consistent failure. 
It's a sad contrast to the book of Joshua. As you're reading through Scripture, you're going to hit Joshua if you're reading through uh, from beginning to the end. And then you're going to move from Joshua, which he wins battle after battle as he leads Israel in God's name to conquer the land. The book of Judges, and that's again when Ruth lived, was more of an anti-conquest where we encounter moral and spiritual failure repetitively. And though we have these judges and there's rising times when there's faith, they always fail. They always fall again. They always slip back. The book of Judges uh, closes with two sad and somewhat horrific historical stories that help the reader grasp the level of religious and moral deviation that was taking place. And these stories at the end of Judges are placed there just so you understand how horrible it was. They're not chronological in the context of the book, but they're laid out so we can see something about how life was. We find idolatrous worship coupled with greed from a Levite, and actually I think it's the grandson of Moses is the Levite, and perverse activity from a specific town in Benjamin, depicting how morally depraved the nation could become. All of this neatly summarized with the closing words from Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Why share all that? Because I want you to realize where Ruth is. What time is she placed in? And that's where we find Ruth. Beyond that, she's a Moabite woman living a healthy faith in such a struggling environment. How in the world is that possible? How does she become the great-grandmother of King David? How come she is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Well, that's going to be seen, and I hope we can see it, in her firm faith in the one true God and her committed faithfulness to live a life that honored Him, a life of service and loyalty. And so we're going to begin looking at her firm faith. And, and oftentimes, the story of Ruth is, a, again, a beautiful picture, and I'm going to talk about it briefly throughout the message, but it is a picture of redemption. Uh, it is Boaz filling a, a type of Christ and painting a picture of what Christ is going to do for us. But sometimes if that's all we see, we miss who Ruth is. Uh, we miss what she shows us, and, and I'm hoping that we can dive in and understand how solid her faith was, how firm it was. And I cook at her firm faith, and that's where her eternal life began. Her declaration of that faith comes in response to her mother-in-law encouraging her to stay in Moab. Naomi is an Israelite woman who had moved there, and so she has lost everything, and we'll chat about that. And so she's encouraging her daughter-in-laws to return to Moab and, and live the life there, to return to their own culture, to return to their own life. Yet Ruth responds with a resounding, please, no. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and the important statement, and thy God, my God. Now, I think it's helpful to get some background uh, to the story. Ten years prior, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and sons Malon and Chilion had left the land of Israel and moved to Moab because of a famine. Now, Moab was not a place that they're supposed to be going. It's not a place that uh, worshiped the Lord. But for whatever reason, here's a man who is represented in Bethlehem who decides to leave for a period of time and go to Moab. In those 10 years, Malon marries Ruth, Chilion marries Orpah and Elimelech, along with both his sons, pass away. So what does 10 years look like? 
You have a family that leaves Israel and goes to Moab. The two sons marry two Moabite women, and in the process, all the men in the family die. Naomi is left with no recourse. She's in Moab with no sons, no husband. Not that life would have been easy in a foreign land. They wouldn't have been able to own land. They would have really had to live on the fringe of society anyway. So she hears that the famine's broken in Bethlehem and decides to head back, and she is joined by her two daughter-in-laws. And as they begin their journey, Naomi is constantly working to convince Ruth and Orpah to return to their parents' home because they're both young and could likely find another husband. Don't miss that with Ruth's life. She had opportunity, what life would have been better for her in Moab, She could have had a life. She could have had a family. She could have had somewhat of what this world could have offered. Orpah is convinced and heads back, yet Ruth is determined to stay. Naomi goes so far as to say this, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Now, I want us to recognize some things, because as you read that, you think that Naomi's missed all of eternity here, because why would she convince someone to go back to false gods when she knows the true God? And she wasn't trying uh, to abandon Ruth to the gods of Moab. Uh, Naomi was a believer and knew eternal hope is only in the one true God. Uh, besides, the worship in Moab included their main god, Shemash. And if I'm mispronouncing this, I'm sorry. So uh, consider the abomination of Moab. His worship was grotesque, at times including human sacrifice, and was connected to lewd sexual conduct. The worship of Shamas was the perfect picture of the bad seen in idolatry and was the definition of what a faithful Israelite should avoid. Our world, and I want us to kind of see this picture, because as bad as Israel was in the time of the judges, you go to Moab and you have pagan worship. And what we miss sometimes in our world, because our world has been Christianized and we've seen the, the light of Christ has been oftentimes spread abroad and we see it in the United States, but our world and culture follows more the grotesque pagan path. We've changed the name of the idol from Shamash to some twisted ideology or even just ourselves and then engage in the worship of that idea or mindset or identity with the same perversion as did the Moabites. And it doesn't take us long to realize how twisted our society is, how wicked it is, how perverse it is, because I'm using some of the words that you should pick up on that identify exactly how our world thinks. Now, keep that in mind. Naomi is well aware of what Moab looks like. And so with that in mind, we return to Naomi's statement of going back to your people and your gods. Naomi was not trying to convince Ruth to go back to this eternal darkness. Instead, Naomi was obtaining from Ruth a bold, clear profession of faith. Orpah turned back. She obviously cared for Naomi. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been journeying with her. And that's a testimony to Naomi's life. Uh, She likely had adopted a form of worship of Jehovah, yet her faith was not real. Uh, In Orpah, we see what fake faith looks like. When another opportunity presents itself, when a better opportunity comes along, you're going to leave it the appeal of her former life, the options of that worship in life, the connection to her blood relatives were more appealing than life among God's people. And I want us to remember this, especially because as Ruth is journeying with Naomi, she is not journeying to a world of a fairy tale. 
she is going to recognize that there is no happy ending. Now, Ruth ends with a beautiful ending, and it has a happy close, but we lose the whole emphasis of her example when we think that she knew that or was going to serve the Lord because of that. I want you to realize where Orpah was not a real believer, Ruth was a true believer. That's why you hear her answer, and treat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. That's a commitment for a lifetime. The Lord do so to me, and notice who she's making her promise to. Yes, it's worded to Naomi, but it's before the Lord, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. See, Ruth firmly declared her identity as a child of the one true God. She declared her commitment to Naomi and called on God as the witness to her dedication. Naomi, upon hearing this, knew now without a doubt the validity of Ruth's faith. It was a non-quitting faith and no longer pressured her to return. And you see contrasted in two people, Orpah and Ruth, what, what is real faith and what does it look like and what action it takes And what does a fake faith look like? Both ladies were going with their mother-in-law. Both cared for her. Both had a a worldly love for her in the sense that they they had a relationship. I think both had a a presentation of faith. But Naomi was, was diving to the core, and Orpah was not a believer, and Ruth was. The fact is, Naomi could tell from that that Ruth was a strong believer, And I want us to to not miss that. She was a true believer, but she was also a strong believer. Many of us as believers have a background of faith. That background is a massive blessing, though it's not always perceived as such, nor is it built upon. My Christian heritage links back to my grandfather on my mom's side, and so I have a tradition of faith that goes back three generations. I know some of you may have a generation, uh, a tradition or a heritage of faith that goes back more than that. That's a blessing. That's a gift from God. Now, we don't always use that correctly. We don't build on that. But I know that not everyone has that background, that blessing. I know I've talked to some of you, and you're the first in your family to know Christ. You're the witness. You're the light that shines out. And I know that's a different starting point. Ruth most certainly did not have a background of faith. She became a believer in the midst of rampant wickedness and paganism, by the way, that should give us hope, right? As we share with our family and friends, as we look at our culture and think, how in the world can we share truth in this world? Well, go read the story of Ruth, and you realize truth can be shared in any world. Um, She's saved through the influence of an Israelite family to whom she's connected by marriage. She married into a family that then suffered extreme loss, was most likely at the lower side of society in Moab, and is now going to land both unknown to her and to which she does not see a fairy tale ending. That's a critical part of understanding Ruth's faith. Ruth's faith was not contingent on God giving her the life that a Moabite woman would expect. It was not contingent on her giving or getting the life that an Israelite woman would expect. Actually, as she journeys in her faith, she's letting go of any type of life for herself as a young woman, and committing to serve and care for her mother-in-law through the likely lean road ahead. Naomi made very clear there's no real prospect of a husband and a family 
at all. She told her daughter-in-laws early on in it, am I going to have more sons? Can those sons marry you? In other words, we have no options for you. But Ruth's faith wasn't tied to God giving her a husband, to God giving her a family, to God giving her a farm, to God giving her the job, to God giving her the career. Her faith didn't connect to a worldly good or a specific picture of a life here. You see, Ruth believed in the one true God, not because of what he would give to her in this life. She was not looking forward to a life defined by this world as a win, but instead because of who he is and the eternity that he gave to her, and that was all she needed. Her faith was in God. Her faith was in what he accomplished for her. Her faith was not contingent on whether God gave her the birthday present she put on her list. Her faith centered in him. Ruth's response to Naomi was not contingent on ultimately getting the life here on earth. Her story has a beautiful ending, but we make a mistake and miss her real strong faith when we add that back to when she was leaving Moab and when she makes this clear declaration of faith in the Lord. Ruth had a firm faith that was not contingent on getting the dream of this life. It was not contingent on getting a break in this life. I have repeated that over and over and over again for one reason. I want you to understand what kind of faith she had. It was not manipulative. It was not shallow. That's why I say she was a strong believer. I know she didn't know everything about God. I know she came from a pagan culture. I know that she has a lot still to learn when she walks into Israelite culture. She's going to constantly be checking with her mom or mother-in-law and finding out how she's supposed to act in this society. Yet her faith was not contingent on getting the dream. It was not contingent on getting a break in this life. Her faith was firmly staked in who God is and his eternal plan. And here's, I would say, the main question of the whole sermon. Could the same be said of our faith? Do we believe in the Almighty Lord because of who he is and that he reigns and that he has redeemed us for all eternity? Or do we believe linked to what we expect from him in this life? So many people don't have their dream. I think that's one commonality that I could throw out there. This isn't my dream. This isn't what I planned. I wanted something more. And there's so many people when you're talking to them, and I can see it in my own heart. I'll endure because God is going to ultimately give me that thing that I'm dreaming of that I want that's in my fingertips, that's there, because that's what God does. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get some form of this dream. That's not a firm faith. That's a manipulative faith. Ruth sets a great example of what faith should look like. It is supposed to be firm, unshaken by what may unfold in this life as we live knowing our security in the next. Someone, and that's Ruth, with no resources at their beck and call. She had nothing to pull from. Recognize that as she leaves Moab, which would have given her the only stability she could possibly know, the only chance of life and a family and kids and all that thing she could have. She has none of that at her beck and call, no prospect for a good life for a family of her own, yet grounded in whom she believed and ready to serve in this status 
until death brought her home to the Lord. I want you to see that. Not serve for a period of time, but notice her promise to Naomi. God do to me if anything but death separate us. In other words, she was committed to living her life of faith in the situation that she was in at that moment. Even though she was young, even though she came from a culture that elevated wickedness and perversion, even though she had no earthly future, she displayed a real and strong faith in the Almighty. And that's a testimony and example for us to follow. As we look out at Mother's Day, what are we to value? And moms, what are we to value as we look forward? And, and it's that. Mr. Hines prayed that. What, what did they do? They raised us up. Uh, they taught us Christ. They taught us scripture that's grounded in us so that we can go out and live out a firm faith. This is a testimony and example for us to follow. As we dive into the book of Judges in probably two months and get into it, don't forget about Ruth. This is how you respond in a culture where everyone's right. You serve the Lord no matter what it throws at you. Yet in God's grace, her story on earth did have a happy ending. Her life was used by God to paint a picture of his ultimate redemption as she experienced the redemption unfolding for her life on earth. Boaz, her future husband, becomes the kinsman redeemer. She is married to him and becomes, as we stated earlier, the great-grandmother of King David, and she's in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unique in that she's a Moabite woman. You go back to Rahab, who was from Jericho, and these women, and by the way, Boaz was a relative of Rahab and would have known that story. And so you see these women woven into the fabric of Christ's line on earth. And all of that, though, flows from a life of committed faithfulness. If you're going to walk away with one thing from Ruth, firm faith. Don't miss that. That's what we're emulating. But I hate to miss the committed faithfulness because sometimes we sit in church and I talk in church, and we're looking here, and we walk away with a theory. I'm going to have a firm faith. And then we walk out, and life hits us. Because the next day, you actually have to do. You have to follow through on what you say you're committed to. And that's what we see in, in Ruth's life. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, and Naomi is quickly remembered, even after 10 years. She'd left with a husband and two sons. She returns a widow with no sons, and only a daughter-in-law, who, by the way, is a foreign Moabite woman. But it's a daughter-in-law that the people will say in the end, better to thee than seven sons. Which is a, a, a bold statement in the nation of Israel. So they return and they re-engage into Israelite society, yet not in the way how Naomi left. When she left, they were landowners. They were they were more important in society, struggling, obviously, because they left because of a famine. As people recognize her, speaking of Naomi, she tells them to call me Mara because of life's bitter turn. And as sometimes we read the beginning and I think, oh, Naomi is trying to convince Ruth to go to paganism. No, she's calling on her to declare her faith and make a firm stand for the one true God. And so when you see this time or this turn here when Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, call me bitter because life has had a bitter turn, we sometimes think she's complaining against God. And that's not the case, actually. What she's doing is she's stating a lament. There are times in life of lament. If you read through the Psalms, and, and most people that pick or cherry pick through the Psalms, they're finding the happy Psalms. Oh, God's going to give me victory. Oh, I'm going to win. Oh, this is great. And that's all wonderful to read. And we should read it. But a third of the Psalms are laments. 
There are cries to God when you are in agony. That's exactly what Naomi is communicating here. This was her new reality, and she shared that with the people, yet in a way that remained faithful to the Lord. She has never deviated from her faith. I find it interesting that after all the men die in Moab, how quickly Naomi returns. And there's a picture there, and and I don't want to put conjecture on it because it's not stated there in Scripture. But notice when there were no men that she returned, her heart was always with God and His people. And so Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, and it's at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is late April, early May, and they begin life together in Israel. And all of us think they're leaving Moab, this horrible place, and coming to vacation in Israel. They're not. They're coming home to nothing. They have nothing. Now, as many of you may know, in Israelite law, and if you were with us through the study in Leviticus, uh, you know this, God orchestrated that during harvest, the corners of fields would be left unharvested to provide an opportunity for food to those least fortunate. And so it seems without delay, Ruth begins working, and then we continue to see God's sovereign hand at work. And so those two things kind of run together as we look at her committed faithfulness. That action highlights a characteristic in Ruth's life. Uh, She was not sitting back bemoaning her plight or expecting something for nothing. She wasn't sitting there saying, here we are, help us out, do something for us. Instead, we see uh, another thing about her. Ruth was a hard worker. I love this part in chapter 2. It starts with, uh, in verse 2, it says, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was a kindred of Elimelech. In other words, it says in Scripture very casually, she went out to work and And by chance, and I use that with quotes, she ends up in the field of Boaz. I want us to see a couple things here. One, Ruth heads out to work. She did the next right thing. A firm faith will be manifested in committed faithfulness. She's going to go out and she's going to get food to eat for Naomi and herself. She was making the most of what God had laid out for those in need, a plan that required one to work, but one that allowed for self-provision in the midst of the society. You weren't going to get rich harvesting or gleaning the corners of the field, but you were going to be fed, and you could take care of that yourself. But God has more in store than just a day's provision. His plan was to connect Ruth with Boaz, and so she ends up in Boaz's part of the field. Uh, By the way, nothing God does is by chance. But I want us to notice something. Notice He worked in Ruth's life as she was working. From God's perspective, it's his sovereign control as he directs her life. Yet from Ruth's perspective, obedient action. It's a good testimony to us. Oftentimes, we're sitting in faith and we're telling God, show me what you're going to do. Reveal your plan. I should know your purpose. None of those things are you uh, even allowed to say to God, that you have the right to say to God. That God may reveal his sovereign purpose, as he does at the end of the story of Ruth, is completely in God's hands. You can know this, God is always in control. But you can also know this, 
God's expectation is obedient action on the part of his children. Well, as we know, Boaz notices Ruth and, and it seems is immediately drawn to her. He had heard of her and her character. As he asked his workers, who's that? That's Ruth. Oh, I know who Ruth is. That's the young woman that gives up everything in her life to come here and serve her mother-in-law and to be committed in faith in that way. And so he asked her to glean always in his fields and he instructs the workers to help her and care for her. If you read through the story of Ruth, you'll hear him tell the workers, let her drink water when she wants to, which was unique. And he actually told them to throw some grain down that she could pick it up. In other words, he's smitten and he wants to help her out. So Ruth, under the consultation of her mother-in-law, continues reaping in Boaz's field for both the barley and wheat harvest remaining under his protective hand. She actually goes back that day and says, hey, I met a guy named Boaz who said, reap only in my field. And Naomi says, yes, that's a, that's a smart thing to do. I mentioned the two harvests because I want you to get a feel for longevity because that's going to be a closing statement uh, we talk about. Ruth was working through the barley harvest, and then she's working through the wheat harvest. Now, it appears that Boaz was not a very presumptuous or pushy fellow. He obviously cared for Ruth, but he was making no proposals, maybe due to his shyness, humility, or some other struggle in his life. And so after the harvest, there comes a time of threshing the grain. And as that came into view, Naomi instructs Ruth to make a bold move. It is a bold move. I put here, but it's not brazen. Our perverse society will oftentimes try to find a way to twist this. If you see any twisting at this point where Ruth uncovers his feet at night, that is not in any way perverse or wrong. Our society is perverse and wrong, and so they find ways to look at it. But basically, Ruth is, or Naomi's instructing Ruth to make a, a bold move to join Boaz and the workers in the threshing work and in the privacy of the evening. And by the way, it's not a public display or a manipulative move to make him feel like he had to say yes to her. Um, she is going to uncover his feet during the night, which is basically proposing marriage to him, which was not the norm in the day. So if you want to look at the first female proposal, there it was, Ruth proposing to Boaz. Boaz responds positively. I always like to note he was first fearful and then positive, but you know, every guy has to get over it, I guess. Um, sending Ruth home with a gift of grain, uh, protecting her against any potential gossip or hindrance to their future marriage. He then resolves the issue of property redemption with the relative that had first rights, and he does it immediately the next day. He wastes zero time. That relative would love to have owned the property, uh, but did not or could not marry Ruth. So Boaz redeems the property, he marries Ruth, and then God blesses them with a son named Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The whole situation again unfolds into that beautiful picture of Christ's redemption on our behalf and firmly plants Ruth in the line of Christ. But I want us to notice something that is part of her committed faithfulness. I want you to notice that she is a worker, uh, that as we dive into her life, so there's a firm faith that is fixed on who God is and what he has done, not on what he will give us, not the treats, not the presence of this earth, not getting this life as we demand it. And then you watch her committed faithfulness. And when you see her faithfulness, you look at someone who dives into the work. Faith has feet. It does something. It, it acts. And so you see her action. But I want us to see 
what she did. She'd worked diligently and she'd worked immediately. She served her mother-in-law in a way that glorifies her Lord. That's why Boaz knows about her, because people are talking about how faithful Ruth is. She exemplified her Savior in how she was living out her faith. Uh, she's shown obedience, and she sought biblical counsel. As you read through the book of Ruth, it's not like Ruth is off on her own and Naomi's just waiting for bread to be made for her, but Ruth goes back and talks to Naomi, understands the culture, gets advice, and, and that's something we can learn from there as well. But through it all, we cannot miss this, that Ruth was an engaged participant. When Ruth went to the threshing area, it was a bold move, as I said. It's not brash, it's not uncouth, it was a bold move to propose marriage. Naomi planned it, but Ruth was the one that went through with it. Uh, Ruth 3, 7 through 13 says this, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. Why is he sleeping at the end of corn? Because people, people would steal things then like they steal things now. So if you're harvesting your grain and then you say, I'm going to go to my house and take a nap. Yeah, thieves will come in and take all your corn. So as they threshed it, they would stay out there to guard what was theirs before they could bring it in in a storehouse. They're going to guard it. And so he's there. And it came to pass, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou, the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning that he... He will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman. Well, let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. And Boaz kind of knows that this guy is not going to follow through. He knows who he is. He knows he has a family. He knows he has his own money and life. He knows he's going to want the property, but he's not going to want the responsibility. And so he sets it up and he takes care of it. But I want you to realize something about Ruth. Ruth took action at the appropriate time and in the appropriate manner. She was not passive when it was time for action, but also she didn't take action until it was time. She was engaged participant in the functioning of her faith and faithfulness, but understood the need for patience because I want you to understand we read a very short story, and so we think everything goes very quickly. She went through two harvests, and I put this, it was a long move. She worked through two harvests. She patiently waited on the Lord's timing. Ruth was working and waiting. Not manipulatively. The Lord had put before her that you go glean in the fields. This is how your life is going to function and unfold. And so she did that. She moved forward in faithfulness, taking the next right step and persisted in that without any entitlement or manipulation. And understand that is the key part of who Ruth is. Never did she do something with that manipulative move. I will do this, God, if you promise me that. She served God because of who God was. She did the next right thing, not saying, well, I'll do this, but I better get to that. 
I'll, I'll work here until you give me something else. I'll do this until you bless me in another way. No, she did the next right thing without entitlement or manipulation. She was faithful in the task at hand, yet she's also prepared to act in the will of the Lord. He orchestrated her ending up in Boaz's field. He knit the heart of Boaz to her. He provided the wisdom and boldness to Naomi to dream and plan biblically, and he gave Ruth courage to act. And when the time came to act in God's timing, Ruth remained faithful and took the next right step. Ruth is a beautiful balance of seeing how God is sovereignly in control, and yet he asks his children to obediently walk down the path that he set before them, not manipulatively, not God, you better make that the end of my journey. I better get that. You have to give me this, but instead take the next right step and faithfully work. I wonder though, if we've displayed her determination to work, her willingness to wait on the Lord, to trust his plan in that moment, yet still be willing to move when his timing is fulfilled. Because oftentimes we either resign ourselves, right? We res- well, I'm just, this is going to be my life. This is what God has for me. Have you ever heard that statement from somebody? That's not someone who's wanting to follow God's path. That's someone who's resigning themselves to plan B as God has dumped on them. The person who says, this is what God has me to do right now and sees that as a positive and step forward, but is prepared when God's timing comes to make a change or to make the next step, but is also prepared to live life completely in that line, to do exactly what God has said to do right then. Do we have a committed faithfulness? Are we working hard and remaining an engaged participant? Ruth is a short story encompassing 85 verses, and as a true biography, we see painted for us a picture of redemption, but we also encounter an example of extraordinary faith, and it's a faith we need to replicate. Ruth stands firm in her belief in the one true God, despite the reality of her upbringing and culture, which was the opposite of belief in the Almighty. Her whole upbringing, everything she was taught, everything she was shown to do, everything she watched her parents do, watched her town do, everything she would have seen was against worshiping the true God. Yet she stands firm despite the fact that that was her upbringing. She stands firm despite the fact that she is not walking into a happy ending. As you read Ruth 1, there's no promise to Ruth that says, don't worry, God's going to send you a husband. He's going to be rich and he's going to redeem you guys and everything's going to work out. You're going to be in line of the, the most amazing king in Israel. And ultimately, when, when God sends his son to the earth to, to be born as a baby, to, to grow up, to die and to, and to sacrifice for sins, you're going to be part of that lineage. That's not a promise she has in Ruth chapter 1. She knows the true God, and she's decided she'll serve him in the situation that she finds herself. Her faith was fixed on knowing God, not giving God her wish list of life. Her actions prove that faith at every step in the way she manifests a committed faithfulness. Life was not easy, and though her story does have a happy ending, we don't want to miss her character as she faithfully served the Lord, never knowing until those things unfolded, that he had planned such amazing blessings for her. So as we close this morning, does our life of faith look anything like Ruth? Do we, as God's people, have a firm faith and live for the Lord and his glory with a committed faithfulness? Let's pray together.
Dear Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and, and study your word, uh, to get a glimpse of a story, a true story that takes place in the time of Judges as we prepare in the next couple months to, to dive in uh, to the book of Judges and we see how your people failed you, how they turned from you, and we get this picture of Ruth in the time of the Judges and, and a foreigner coming into Israel through faith and in faith, living out exactly what you've called us to do. Give us a determination to live lives like Ruth, to have a firm faith no matter what our culture may throw at us, to have a firm faith even though circumstances may seem to have removed any sense of hope in this life. Ruth was staring at a tough life in chapter 1, but that life was worth it because she was able to serve her God and maker. She was able to serve the one true God. She was able to grow in her relationship uh, with you. Help us to have that same determination and help us to take the next right step uh, in our faith, constantly doing and acting in committed faithfulness. In your precious and holy name, amen.